You're listening to the Sexual Wellness Sessions with Kate Moyle. This episode was brought to you by Quana, a CBD company championing sexual wellness as a means to heal and live more fulfilling lives. Through creating quality, gynecologist-backed intimate care products, Quana honours inclusivity and promotes an educational platform that encourages their community to be fearless in the face of stigmas. They've launched the UK's first all-natural and sustainably packaged CBD and prebiotic-powered lubricant, Oomph. Oomph was created to be a game-changing experience in the bedroom and beyond, with an effective plant-based formula designed for intimate healing, unforgettable pleasure and vibrant well-being. They are committed to an all-natural organic ingredients, always and forever, for your health and for the health of our planet. Oomph also garners the powerful healing properties of CBD to ease discomfort via pelvic relaxation and increase pleasure sensation to reach your peak. To learn more and browse, visit their website, buyquana.com, and if you want to try it for yourself, you can use the code KATEOMPH to get 20% of all products. Today we're going to be talking about something that we have pretty much all been through and that is incredibly emotional, incredibly sensitive, brings a lot of stuff up, brings up a lot of opinions and gets a lot of airtime, particularly in novels and writing and magazines and on our screens. And that topic is relationship endings and breakups. And I am thrilled that my colleague and friend Charlotte Fox Webber who is a relational psychotherapist is coming on to talk about this. She is a writer with a particular interest in desire and our hidden wants and secrets and that is the subject of her book What We Want which is coming out this summer but she also founded and headed up the School of Life Psychotherapy Service and we both are really connected on the fact that relationships are such a massive part of our humanity and our human experience but also that we can't talk about relationships without talking about them ending. Absolutely breakups are a huge part of conversation but that doesn't mean that we know how to deal with them. Mm. And I think that's the thing isn't it I think one of the things that it feels like a lot of the writing around breakups is about is that we're trying to permanently find a solution or a formula Mm. for how to deal with a breakup and I remember I think it was an episode of Sex in the City where they had this theory which was you had to take the amount of time of the relationship and half it and that was the amount of time it should take you to get over a breakup or something bizarre like that. Oh yes that was Charlotte's formula I remember (laughs) that well. And it's just again and I think we see it with sex all the time don't we that we are constantly trying to kind of quantify or objectively measure or solve subjective problems and experiences. And I yes. feel like breakups are a massive part of that. And the real, the real answer is there isn't an answer to how to get over a breakup, is there? I, completely. I, I think people put pressure on themselves thinking that there is a, a way to master breaking up a way mm. to do it perfectly. And and the same can be said of grief, that people feel like there's a right way to do it. And actually just getting through it somehow is already good enough. Mm. That doesn't mean there aren't ways that we can find an easier way. Yeah. I often talk to people about how breakups are like going through a breathing process. Like we are mm. mourning and we're not just mourning the loss of that person or grieving the loss of that person, but also the loss of something in terms of where we thought that relationship might be going or what the future of that relationship might look like, but also in a way that kind of version of ourselves, which is in relation with that other person or that kind of we coupled version of ourselves. Mm. Well, I think that very often after a big breakup, there's a loss of a sense of self Mm. because you've become used to seeing yourself through someone else's eyes. And even if that's very denigrating and and damaging, there can be a very strong trauma bond and an attachment to the source of of meaning and suffering. So people can find themselves missing the suffering. Mm. It's complicated and and does not take a linear path. And do you think that we should treat 
breakups then almost like emotional injuries? Yes, I think I think that it's often an identity crisis when it's a big breakup. And when I say big breakup, I mean when when it's the end of a relationship that has been formative, that has contributed to your sense of self. Mm. But forgetting the sex in the city formula for for time. <laughs> I sometimes that means the end of a kind of infatuation. Sometimes it means the end of a long, complicated friendship. Whatever that breakup consists of, it, it's when it has changed who you are, changed your your sense of meaning. That I think a kind of identity crisis can easily occur, which which isn't all bad by any means. I I'm a big fan of identity crises, as painful as they are. Mm. It's better than stagnation. See, that's really got my brain slightly worrying because you are framing it in a way which I think sounds different to what we normally think about breakups, which in a way is that it's all about the other person and you're saying actually we should bring it inwards and think of it all about ourselves. And I think so often the conversation around breakups is about how we move on or get Mm. over it or whatever we phrase we want to use. But there seems to be so much focus on the other person and what the other person did rather than the meaning that it had to us. Certainly, certainly. And I think that looking at the other can become a source of fixation and obsession. And I'm slightly contradicting what I said earlier that, you know, however you get through a breakup is good enough. There There are ways that we can make it more bearable for ourselves. And I think that when we start obsessing and ruminating and agonizing over small details and kind of combing through the past with forensic acuity, I, I think that it's time to step back and and look at ourselves and the kind of bigger picture and and not just fixate over the other. Do you think that things like social media can make that worse? Because I think that's one of the hardest things at the moment is we almost have this window into our ex-partners or people we've been dating or people that we've slept with or friends. We, we have this window into other people's lives or this kind of visual ability to see what's going on or this ability to see what's happening mm. that we never used to have before. So there's almost no such thing as complete separation. And even if in the instance that someone blocks us, which we see that people do a lot, that in itself is a statement that, we wouldn't necessarily have seen in previous generations or pre-social media. Mm. I, I think that it, it, social media has absolutely fed our fantasies and our kind of window shopping temptation. Like it, we, we walk by other people's lives and, and get a glimpse and we think that we then understand what's going on. But we're, we're just seeing the storefront. And we can very quickly fill in that picture and make all sorts of punishing assumptions. Mm. And I think it's amazing how imaginative our minds are. We don't appreciate our imagination in those ways. But when you're jealous, when you're obsessed, when you're infatuated, enthralled, tortured, you so quickly come up with scenarios that are vivid and can fantastic and and full of details without necessarily realizing it yeah we just fill the gap we fill the information gap where and you start picturing don't have the information yeah and i yeah i think that happens it's something i talk about in basic terms of sex education we don't have the answer we fill that space and we make an answer yeah we find one um which is where lots of people getting information from sources that aren't helpful can be problematic. Mm. But as you said there, I think there's something fascinating about that idea that we might conjure up an entire narrative about how that person is feeling or what's going on for them or what they're doing or if they've moved on. Mm. And I think that so much of that can then also tie into the self-criticism that we sometimes engage with when it comes to breakup. So this mm. idea of what's wrong with me and kind of internalizing what we did wrong or am I unlovable? And, you know, I think that this really can feed into people's 
ideas about themselves and as you said that kind of questioning of self which is what did I do for this person to not want to be in a relationship with me or not want to stay Mm. with me and I think we particularly see that in people that might have gone through patterns of several breakups or several dates getting to a certain point and then them stopping or Mm. those kind of repeated scenarios well so I think that it's it's really interesting to consider the role of blame and responsibility Mm. because blame is how we try to make sense of suffering and if if we're hurting it's someone's fault either our own or the other person and I think with with the law of no faults divorce which is absolutely brilliant it's also complicated because even if legally we believe in no faults divorce and there are lots of couples who have been waiting to to file for divorce because of that law coming into effect emotionally I, there's still moments of thinking it's definitely his fault and and that's when we start saying is he a narcissist or is she a narcissist do you think that she has depression and that's what made her do this like we we look for answers or do you think it's because I'm unlovable like and whether or not we even verbalize these things we are constantly assigning blame to kind of explain narratives and to come up with cause and effect Mm. and it's really difficult but also often important to to be able to recognize that things happen and not always because of someone being bad. Sometimes people behave appallingly. I don't mean to be a Pollyanna about it because there can be despicable behavior, of course, but but it's also about finding understanding rather than overly explaining. Mm. Someone said, I don't know who it was. I feel like it might have been Esther Perel. Um, she normally says everything that I quit. Yeah. But do you want to be right or do you want to be together? Oh, yes. She she has said that. This idea of how we're all two, if there's two people or more, if there's more people in the relationship, fighting for the rightness, you know, this idea of us as individuals being mm. right versus how can we both always be right? And something that we were taught when I was studying for my relationship therapy masters was we treat every couple as cross-cultural in the idea that every individual has their own culture. And even that, in a strange way, siblings from the same families will all have their own version of events, will all have their own version, their own experiences, their own setup, and how Mm. we should treat every couple with this approach of having to understand each other's culture, but when we mean culture, we mean everything from communication to the meaning of silence. So Mm. for someone, it could be angry, and for other people, it could be calm. Mm. And this idea of kind of how we have to translate between couples, and I think that that's, as you said, understanding each other, but also understanding, I guess, that sometimes it's, it's not a good fit understanding without thinking that it's ever entirely explicable mm-hmm. because I think one of the ways we we get stuck when we are dealing with a breakup is thinking we must solve this and it, we become detectives and and not necessarily good detectives I've, I've definitely played the clumsy detective role myself in in various ways of thinking I I've got to kind of go through this evidence and and sort it out and and make sense of it all. We can't always make sense of it all. Mm. And I think sometimes just having insight, but then but then kind of sitting with some of the mystery as well, not thinking that it's for us to fix. And and the right and wrong thing is is kind of fodder for thinking that we can fix it. Mm. Do you think a bit of that is also us trying to work out what went wrong so that for our next relationships, it doesn't go wrong in that way again? So it's a bit of a self-protection thing. Yes, I think it can be a kind of relationship PTSD mm-hmm. where we're thinking never again. I, we must learn. We must we must make sure that we prevent that from, from ever catching us by surprise again. And, mm-hmm. and we, we've got to do better. Um, but I also think it can be a way of undoing and redoing 
and thinking if only that had gone this way, then it could have been great. It's kind of holding on to some story of potential in certain ways. Mm. And that potential, I suppose, is the risk of us opening ourselves up to doing it again, isn't it? Isn't that that kind of moving into a new relationship or trying someone new? And I suppose it's about kind of attaching, detaching, reattaching. Interesting. I, for some, there is that kind of wish to to try something afresh. For others, the idea of anything replacing is just so kind of unimaginable. So I, when people are, I, I mean, the same can occur in mourning, but when people are reeling from a breakup, I, they often can't see past the breakup and, and they want to stay with it. They might also want to kind of get past it, but they don't know how to picture life without that person. So I think that the agony can also be a way of holding on to the person who is lost. Mm. Even though it's kind of torturous to obsess over your ex, it's also a way of of keeping that ex. Maintaining the connection. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I hadn't really thought about it. And hoarding some of the details. It does kind of make sense because they, they aren't gone. Yeah, they're, they're right with you. You think of them in various ways. You have associations constantly. You can kind of make it possible so that all roads lead back to that person. Yeah. And even if it's maddening, it's also it's also very present and lively. And what about the reality of actually going back to that person rather than it just being about the connection? I mean, can it ever be a good idea to go back? I I think that there's no one size fits all and it it depends on the connection and the relationship and I would never come up with a rule for something like that. That said, when people are in therapy with me and they're describing really, really dangerous, damaging relationships, I I will say that I'm concerned. I mean, I Mm. think if, if someone is wanting to go back to an abusive relationship with their clear patterns of harm, it, it's not going to, it's not going to be a great idea in all likelihood. Mm. And there's often a kind of interesting illusion and it's almost like there's this grain of believing in miracles when people when people go back to a really damaging relationship. And it, it can be a bit like gambling where you, you go back to the casino, even though you've gone into debt, even though you really cannot afford to be spending more money, even though the house always wins. You go back to the casino just because there's that tiny possibility of a win. Mm. And I think I think it's really hard to let go of that that grain of possibility. And and it sometimes gets mistaken for hope. So people think that they're holding on to hope by by still believing in something. But actually I wouldn't call it hope. I would call it waiting for miracles. Hmm. And I suppose that's when we think that those people were retrying relationships where both partners haven't changed. Hmm. But there are possibilities. I mean, I know possibilities, kind of friends, for example, where they have broken up and maybe it's taken some time or both partners have gone away and either kind of explored or done some work on themselves and then come back and it has been different. And I suppose that's also a... Goodness, absolutely. ...possibility. Uh, Yes, completely. I mean, I'm all in favor of people trying to make relationships work when when they both want to and there's a strong connection. Couples can get through just about anything if they're really determined and want to. Mm. But do you think it's the don't expect a different output with the same input so if there have been changes made then the relationship can be different and can function differently whereas if we just assume that going back without making changes the things will be different that that's probably maybe an expectation too far Uh, yes I I would say it's when it's incredibly asymmetrical Mm -hmm. that it's problematic and and unlikely if one person has 
has really loved the other person without very much in return at all. Mm -hmm. And there are no signs of that really changing. And when someone describes a partner who has never offered real love and, and continues not to offer real love, but I mean, basically it's breadcrumbing. I'm, Mm. I'm talking about where if people then think that the breadcrumbs are going to turn into a feast, then the likelihood of that happening without without any actual plans of a feast are low. Mm. But I'm also very compassionate about the wish to kind of make do with the breadcrumbs mm. because because it's very, very tempting and almost addictive. I mean, it's almost addictive. It's as addictive as crack when it comes to kind of holding on to those breadcrumbs. So so I, I recognize it's really hard to to walk away and stay away when you're obsessed with someone, when you're in love with someone. But also we see that society and culture is very couple-centric and yes. that we really, we kind of still have this idea that we should all aspire to be in relationships and build life as a couple and that 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 is a not a superior way of being but we we still have these really ingrained narratives which is that being coupled is better than being single and i think that mm. we see that a lot and we're seeing this really growing body of conversation which i think is really positive about kind of people being happy and single or this idea of being child free mm. and it's pushing back against some very ingrained narratives, which is that the, sh- the should, the thing that we should do is move up the res- the relationship escalator, that mm. we should be coupled. We see that there are always things advertised to share or for two. And a lot of single people talk about the financial cost of also being single, the two incomes not getting a yeah as big a mortgage, mm. as having to share the cost of things. There is that practicality of it. But I think that... We do have these, whether they're unconscious or not, judgments in society from society that being in relationships is aspirational, I suppose, is the word I'm looking for. There are judgments in every direction. And you're completely right that there is a big expectation for people to be in relationships. Um, And even in our profession, in the history of psychotherapy, there can be a kind of encouragement for being in relationships and that that can be problematic mm. and i think those kind of stories of how life is supposed to be it's a sign of development progress that you're supposed to be in a relationship as you mature as you grow up or that dreadful term settling down <laughs> which is just like the worst picture ever i mean it's so it's so dismal as an expression, but people, people feel a huge pressure from the shoulds. Mm. And I think that clarifying the shoulds and sometimes distinguishing them from the wants is very liberating. Yeah. But I I think there can be shoulds in other directions as well when people feel pressure to break up. Yeah. So I've had a lot of couples and, and individuals in therapy who say, can, must I must I break up with this person because he had an affair? Mm. Must I continue to separate because she's behaved this badly? Like I, there, there can be a kind of judgment and shaming that goes on sometimes from very well-meaning, well-intended, loving family and friends that, that couples have to split up mm. because because a crisis has occurred, because one person has behaved badly, because they they don't see it working. And I think that that freeing yourself from those kind of judgments can also be incredibly important because breaking up because your mother has told you to is, is probably going to leave you with resentment and won't be the most congruent choice. Mm. And I suppose there's also the additional element to that is what others make of the breaking up or the staying mm. so others judgments of us or how 
It's about how we view that. Which can be so chaotic and crowding and confusing, like utterly overwhelming. Like I can't stay because she cheated on me because then what will everybody think? Right. And people start to almost survey their nearest and dearest. And not just nearest and dearest. It could be taxi drivers and hairdressers and randomers and asking everyone for their opinion. And I I think it's almost kind of emotionally promiscuous when you start seeking advice from, from a big committee of people. And then if you're a people pleaser, which is many of us, then there can be an odd pressure to kind of take the advice of people around you. Like, what if I piss off my friend because she's now told me to break up with this guy. And if I don't, she's going to be annoyed with me. Mm. And if you have a big committee of opinions, you're not going to please that whole committee, let alone how you feel. Yeah, they're also not all going to match up, are they? And No. And why are you trying to, you know, obey this committee? Why, why has it become about that? So it can be a bit of a sideshow as well, where the committee of people weighing in is very overwhelming. Mm. And do you think in a way then if we're going through that breakup process, we've been through a breakup that actually not talking to a whole host of people could be something to think about because also our friends are and our family, they're not therapists, they're not objective or mutual and they're also going to be talking from their experiences and their feelings and their input which is not just about you but also their side of it and we're going to be hearing all these different accounts all these different inputs and that can be a lot because even if we perhaps felt okay with our decision then it can almost make us question everything or stir it back up. Mm -hmm. I think that being discerning about who you confide in is is very important just for containment. But I also think that some people are more comfortable being open than others. As some extroverts process conversationally, they don't know how they feel until they talk it out. And if if it's helpful to talk with people, then great. But keep paying attention to what's helpful and what's actually stressful because there can there can be an odd sense of obligation to fill everyone in and to over confide. And then, and then it can go the other way. Some people just go into isolation and, and talk to no one. And, and that's really problematic as well. So I think that just paying attention to how it makes you feel when you talk to people about what's going on is, is really important. If, if talking to your friend helps you and, and makes you feel better, then great. But if it leaves you feeling judged, confused, and overwhelmed and burdened, then then you don't have to keep doing it. Mm. And it's a continual assessment in that sense. Mm. And I think there was something in what you just said there that reminded me of how many people went through breakups in the pandemic and were... Mm breaking up, but also then isolated by the fact that they weren't able to perhaps deal with the breakup in the way they might have done normally. And during lockdown, and obviously there were huge relationship changes for lots of couples who Mm. were not used to kind of being in the same space together or were separated because of lockdown or were locked down together and realised that it wasn't working. And that brought up a huge amount of stuff. But the idea of going through, and lots of, as lots of people did, going through breakups in lockdown when then the ways in which they would normally deal with something like a breakup were not available to them. Mm. Yes, the kind of rich tapestry of experiences was suddenly narrowed. And I think that narrowing can be a problem anyway when you break up with someone and your world, it feels kind of restricted and a lot reminds you of your ex and you're full of associations. And I think widening your experience can be helpful. And so lockdown was especially punishing because, because we were all just living in kind of small restrictive circles and working from home, just like being in close quarters 
not not socializing in the same way made it incredibly hard. And something you said there made me just think that when we do break up with someone, sometimes our world does get smaller because we might we have shared things, we have perhaps shared friends or colleagues. We fall in love sometimes with people, not just with people, with their families and their siblings. And we're not just talking, I suppose, about breakups here, but also divorces. Or we might have a shared pet. We might have a shared home. That yeah, it's our world can get smaller. And particularly, you know, if we feel that friends, for example, might pick them over us. Or we we don't just lose that person, but we we lose the world that was shared with that person. It is all of those things. And it can be just excruciating. And it's why I think that like grief, it's not a linear process. So I think that pacing yourself is really important because it, it's not something that you need to get over in five minutes. That doesn't mean that it's going to be agony for the next five years either. But I think that kind of taking it as it comes can can also be important because you can you can find yourself feeling okay one day and then and then feel like there's a setback the next week and and people get very freaked out by setbacks so their world has opened up again and life is good and then wait it's it's feeling really hard again I, that's that's okay that's that's still progress it doesn't undo the good work that you have been doing in recovery. Mm. But actually we should kind of expect the setbacks. Yes. I think that if those setbacks weren't so shocking, then I, yeah, we wouldn't be freaked out by them. We would just, we would just kind of roll with the punches a bit more. We can see that in terms of sometimes people have really um, impulsive reactions to loss. Mm. And what we do know is that that, None of this happens in a vacuum. You know, everything is impacted by our life experiences, our context, what's going on, where we are at the moment. And we can see these impulsive behaviours might seem scary. You know, you, you hear accounts, things like phrases like my psycho ex-girlfriend, things like that, or my crazy ex-girlfriend or my crazy mm. ex-boyfriend. And, you know, not particularly helpful or mm. conducive to anything phrases. But those extreme behaviours might sometimes happen or there's lashings out and that they also might be a part of this process and let's not forget I suppose that emotions are incredibly intense and sometimes things can feel like they kind of burst out of us or that we're caught off guard by that. Yes but I also think it's just very difficult to kind of see the shades of gray. Mm. We have an easier time. You see it in children. If there's a baddie and a goodie, it it can feel less complicated. So kind of bifurcating that, it can, can as simplistic as and reductive as it may sound, it, it's still very tempting to think he, he is a terrible person. I am a victim. Or I am completely to blame. I can't believe that I'm so odious. I, I mean, that that self-loathing can happen mm. just as much. And and of course, I, there can be a, a kind of horror with bad behavior, and and we can act we can act monstrous to those we love, mm. and and hateful. And of course, it can turn vitriolic. I also think it's sometimes important to recognize abuse, and to kind of call it out and and that is that is an area where our kind of automatic responses can be misguiding and that is a time when I, I think that letting other people steer can be very helpful mm. and and kind of knowing that you may need to override your impulses for a while mm-hmm. because because you're responding in a way that has been conditioned yeah, absolutely. I think that is such an important point for us to make. And I think we we see when we're working with relationships, don't we? We work with particular relationship therapists. We work with the dynamic 
the in-between, the relational. Mm. And we're understanding mm. what dynamic is going on between those people, what it creates, what it hides, what it brings up, where it's intensified. And it feels like we are assessing that. I mean, you know, a lot of the time as a relationship therapist, we talk about we're working with the relationship and not the two individuals. You know, the relationship is the client. Mm. And I guess in terms of dynamics mm. and thinking about patterns, something I wanted us to touch on is this idea of attachment styles. Mm. And, I, you know, maybe it's almost a kind of episode in itself, but we can't see everything through one lens in life. But attachment styles is obviously one that we do talk about in therapy. Mm. But it might be something that also offers clarity to people as to why they feel like they keep getting into the same relationship over and over again mm. because of these styles or behaviours. And we talk about secure attachment styles, which are almost this ability to move comfortably through different stages of intimacy and closeness. Yeah. And we have anxious attachment styles and avoidant attachment styles. Mm. And avoidant being that that actually more comfortable state is further away. Right. Or that actually closeness might make us feel more anxious and mm. actually we feel safer at a distance mm. and anxious being the opposite, that we mm. feel safer, loved, connected when we are we're closer, when we have that more kind of constant nature of a relationship. Mm. And actually, we actually see that people who are in anxious and avoidant attachment styles often end up in relationships together, don't we? Yes. I I really think that there are fewer people with secure attachment styles than we believe mm. also. I think that we can all be pushed and pulled into zones of insecurity. Mm -hmm. So you you can have a wonderfully secure relationship maybe with your therapist and maybe with your partner for a time and and your child and friends but you can also be in your in your most uneasy state and i think I, there can be an odd stigma around this and and some of it i even think comes from the history of psychotherapy where I, there's this belief that there are lots of people with secure attachment styles and i i'm just i'm yet to meet those people or maybe you can meet them and and believe that from afar. But up mm. close, we're all able to be insecure. Definitely. Well, that's the human condition, no? I think so. But I, I think I, there can be a kind of pride when people when people come to therapy, they sometimes say, I, I have a secure attachment style and my partner doesn't. And I, I think it's an interesting sense we have. I think something to do with this, this thinking about unconscious couple fit that we also talk about in therapy which is a bit like an iceberg that mm. the ways we think we might match with someone all the obvious bits are above the surface but then underneath there's so much more but all the bit that we can see above the water we're like yep aligned on that aligned on that aligned on that we must be a great fit but actually mm. so much of where we connect in relationships with each other is in that under the water part in the unconscious uh, completely and and that can be problematic as well mm. so it, it's a truism that the thing that attracts you initially in a relationship is often problematic later on the thing that drives you most mad yeah and sometimes someone with a kind of dismissive avoidant attachment style is drawn to an anxious even clingy attachment style in another person because there's a kind of demonstrative persona. There's an appeal to how warm and kind of affectionate that other person is. And for the warm, affectionate, anxiously attached person, I, he or she might find the partner appealing because of the independence, because of the sense of autonomy and kind of mm. not, not being so needy. That, that can be very appealing at first, but it can also then be maddening later on when there's a distance and then and then you get into a kind of pursuer-distancer dynamic where couples can dance backwards off a ledge. Yeah, and I think it's something 
you know, we hear from people, isn't it? I was attracted to them because they were the life and soul of the party. They were all the, always the loudest person in the room and everyone was drawn to them. And right. now I'm sick of it because it's all about them. And anytime we go out, you know, everyone's looking at them mm. and it makes me feel bad. And it's, we see these kind of complete flips in, yeah. you know, the thing that most attracted me to them is actually the thing that, you know, I now kind of can't stand. I, completely. And also because life can change, circumstances can change. So she used to socialize all the time and now all she does is nag and complain. But but now there's a mortgage and mm-hmm. three children. So, I, I mean, I think that recognizing the the role of change is also very important. Definitely. Within couple dynamics. In terms of change, you know, we know that things do change and obviously then some people are able to kind of weather those changes and some people aren't. When we see those breakups, we know that they are incredibly painful and we also know that there was a 2011 study that showed that people who have recently been through breakups experience similar brain activity when shown photos of their loved ones mm. as the as same similar brain activity as when they had physical pain. And, you know, we kind of think that that rejection, you know, is painful. And a lot of what we're talking about here is rejection, isn't it? Is us feeling rejected and, mm. you know, maybe we are the one doing the rejecting or maybe we are the one feeling rejected, but one way that people might move on from that, because as social creatures, we there's also an element of evolutional, which is protect against rejection, because rejection, you know, on a really basic kind of um, primitive level is a threat to our survival. Mm. But is the natural instinct to kind of patch up the wound as quickly as possible to move on to jump into the next relationship. And we, we sometimes see people like this described as serial monogamists. You know, they go from one long-term relationship to another long-term relationship. And I guess it's not necessarily a bad thing, but we have that. We also have ideas, phrases um, like rebound sex. Mm. And I guess, do we think that ever jumping from one thing into another without a period of, I don't know, healing, awareness, do we ever think it's a good idea? I think that there are always exceptions mm-hmm. and that we we can all find our own way. I do think that we've become phobic about rejection mm-hmm. and we do well to actually be radically accepting of it because we all get rejected at different moments in life. And, and you can stay in a relationship and be hugely rejected. It's not as if you're immune to rejection if you if you are living with someone and don't break up. Mm. But you can also reject yourself. You can feel rejected by strangers. You can feel rejected by an Uber driver when you get a low rating. I mean, we we have rejections as part of life, but but suddenly there's this kind of preciousness around it. And, and I'm sure I'm, I'm, I'm guilty of this as well, so I don't want to act overly righteous about it, but rejection sensitivity, like trigger alert, I, what if something feels rejecting? Life can be incredibly brutal. And that doesn't mean we should look for rejection. But I think that if we can normalize it to a degree, we can actually be less horrified and appalled when it happens. Mm. Because it just it just happens. It happens in friendships. It happens at work. It, it happens anytime you, you put yourself out there you are vulnerable to it happening. Mm. And even if you don't put yourself out there, then then you're rejecting yourself in a mm. way. And we're, we're, I often talk to my clients about this when we're talking about dating and things, just in simple terms of saying, well, you don't like everyone you meet. I definitely don't like everyone I meet. I know that everyone won't like mm. me. And there's a factor which is a normalizing of some people we meet and we get on with really well some people we don't like we don't like all our colleagues you know we don't stay with the first person that we date forever for most of us mm. we explore you know a lot of it is relationship trial and error we're friends for I again I don't know who said this like um, someone said the phrase friends for a reason a season or a lifetime mm. and I think that 
when we kind of explore that as an idea, it's interesting. But for me, in terms of this idea about rejection at the moment, one of the biggest things that came to mind was this idea of ghosting that we see. And I think it's incredibly problematic. And, Mm. you know, I talk about ghosting a lot in therapy with people because maybe because a bit like what we were saying earlier, it leaves that gap, the information gap, no explanation, you know, what happened? Why? And I actually think it's an incredibly irresponsible behavior. Yes. Because again, it has taken, it's taken people out of, I understand that it's a nature of, for example, dating apps. And I think what is difficult is we get matched with someone on a dating app, we get that dopamine hit, makes us feel good. Mm. And then we can get the crash when, for example, someone ghosts us. But there is no responsibility, which means that it leaves the person who is being ghosted with only the assumption that it's something they did. And quite often I talk to people about how actually the person doing the ghosting is in no way being made to take responsibility for their behaviour in a way that if it was a face-to-face interaction, perhaps they would have to and they wouldn't Mm. behave that way in a face-to-face interaction and how the the distance created by being online facilitates that that lack of responsibility but it's it's kind of presented I think as a diluted rejection but I don't think it feels that way yes well and sometimes people who have ghosted someone don't want to have the awkward conversation. So they don't want... Yeah, we'd rather avoid the awkward conversation completely. They'd, and it would be mean to be rejecting, but actually ghosting is incredibly rejecting, mm-hmm. of course. And I think I think it's all about our wish to, to make sense of experience. I, the way you look up at stars and it's it's difficult to kind of accept the fragmentation and not being able to cluster things together. And so we want to, we want to have order. We want to make categories and we want to be able to tell the story to ourselves of what has happened, what has gone wrong. So I think that, that finding a way to, to tell yourself the story of what's happened, including some of the question marks, again, not over explaining, but, but having enough of a story, it can, can give you some peace yeah, we just love to have the answers, don't we? And sometimes we don't get them, but the difficulty is we just have to accept that we won't get them. But that goes against what we've been taught as humans, which is go and find the answer. I think you can face the ghost in yourself, even if even if it isn't actually getting clarity from that mm. other person. You can kind of confront that ghost. And do you think we should be taught about this stuff? In schools? Yes, I think that emotional skills, interpersonal skills should definitely be taught at schools. I think that children can can kind of come about some of these themes, children, teenagers, like I, it's all there in literature, in books, but I think we don't necessarily encourage reflective discussion mm-hmm. about about breakups specifically. Because I think that we should be having conversations and maybe it will, you know, it's definitely starting to come about more as a part of the kind of new sex and relationships education. But, I mean, I feel like there's such a big move needed on this narrative of relationship breakup equals failure, whereas why can't we flip it to relationships can work for a while and then they come to an end and that doesn't mean they weren't successful it doesn't mean they weren't meaningful they weren't important it just means that they weren't right Mm. for ever or as people moved into a different stage together and I almost think that if we taught this kind of stuff really early that it would make people feel less shit about themselves quite honestly a lot of the time when it happened it would normalize it but I mean this is why I I think that having identity crises can be a really good thing. Mm. And you don't want to have an identity crisis at every moment in life. They're they're nice plateau time periods and settled content time periods, but I think I think that identity crises also open up space for meaning and possibility and growth and change. Mm. And breakups can certainly do that. And often we avoid breakups 
even though we also might want to break up because we're just terrified of the unknown. Mm. And and it is about kind of sticking with the devil you know and the familiarity and not trusting that we could survive on our own and and feeling feeling just really scared. Yeah. I think I think breakups do require a lot of courage. Yeah, I agree because it is that separating from what we know. And then I guess what I want to kind of think about for ending this conversation is I guess there are such things as good breakups and you know the the famous version that we all knew was um Gwyneth and Chris's conscious uncoupling that was mm. I remember that being kind of like headline on the front of all the papers at that phrase. But I suppose couples can acknowledge that things aren't working and that they want to separate and to move on and that that's also okay? Of course it's okay. But I think that it's the pressure to kind of get it right that makes us feel like it's got to it's got to be rosy. So people mm, sometimes yes. want to tie things up with a bow. Mm-hmm. And not every relationship can end in a beautiful way. I'd even include therapy to that. I mean, or friendships. Like sometimes ruptures cannot be fully repaired or shouldn't be fully repaired or you leave work and actually you're really pissed off because something went terribly wrong. And sometimes people end relationships in a hideous way and, and that too can be survived and, and trying to kind of flip that or, or make it peachy is, is just going to be another source of pressure and, and also won't, really ring true even internally so it's this idea of abolishing this idea of the perfect ending yeah and wonderful if it can be good enough but do not put pressure on yourself to tie things up with a bow because it's another way that we can fail our expectations yes and and think that there's a right way and a wrong way and that that you're somehow getting it wrong if you don't feel upbeat about it to tie off this conversation not with a bow (laughs) (laughs) do we think there is any advice that would be helpful for people going through breakups or post breakups or I mean pre-breakups I guess if they're thinking about it or is do we think that advice really is kind of you do you I I think my advice would be expect contradictions expect ambivalence Mm -hmm. so the other thing is I I really like the story of Bandura's ass. It's an ancient Greek myth about a donkey choosing between two bales of hay and he starves to death. And the moral of the story is that either bale of hay would have been good enough, but it's the back and forth and not choosing. Mm-hmm. So I think that when, when people break up, they often think that they should be resolved, that they should and, and I think that's part of why we kind of split and either hate ourselves or, or blame the other because we think that, you know, it's this bale of hay or it's that bale of hay. When actually, I think tolerating that ambivalence is very important. So pick a bale of hay if, if you if you do break up, but also expect that, of course, there are going to be moments when you desperately miss the other person. And there will be moments when you feel oddly detached and you will feel everything in its opposite in all likelihood. And then sometimes you'll feel nothing at all. And it's it's all fine. And even when it doesn't feel bearable, I think I think the expectation that your feelings should match your choice is is burdensome. I hope you enjoyed this episode of the Sexual Wellness Sessions. If you'd like to join us for more conversations, you can click subscribe on either Apple or Spotify podcasts. And if you have a moment, please leave us a review.